welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC 287, headlined by a title fight in the middleweight division between Alex Pereira and Israel Adesanya. We got a great co-main event on tap as well as Jorge Masvidal returns against Gilbert Burns and a ton of great fights with a lot of hot prospects on the come-up finally getting a true test in their fights or in their come-up in the UFC. And I'm very excited to see whether they're able to pass it or whether they are not the real deal as a lot of people expect these guys to be so a ton of great matchups to come up and a lot of entertaining ones as well to check out before we get into it obviously i'd like to go over the quick uh predictions of the last card or the last card or the lock of the night and dog of the night predictions that i had for them last week there was no ufc but there was four cards in total at least the ones that i cover bellator which i dropped a breakdown for pfl and then two cffc cards I ate shit. I'm gonna be honest. You gotta be. You gotta be honest with these things, right? And I ate complete shit on those. I went one and three on my lock of the night predictions over those four cards, as well as two and two on my dog of the night predictions. Quickly going over it with the lock of the night, I had Aaron Jeffrey for a Bellator, and I really expected his cardio advantage to come through to get out of those bad positions in rounds two and three. I knew round one would be close, but I felt like he would pull away in rounds two and three. Did not come to fruition. I can't blame him. John Salter, I very much overlooked him. And he ended up retiring after that matchup, which, again, it hurts a little bit more that Jeffrey wasn't able to send him into retirement uh, with an L. Uh, In the PFL, I had uh, Chris Wade, who I expected to do a similar thing to what Aaron Jeffrey did, but just recreate what he did the first time he fought Bubba Jenkins. And he was unable to do so and unable to get out of that wrestling grasp of Bubba Jenkins, who clearly leveled up since the last time they competed. Uh, I thought Chris Wade would start to pull away with that fight in rounds two and three with his superior cardio and superior ability to scramble. Unfortunately, he was unable to do so, and Bubba Jenkins pick up, picks up the win. I had a 20-second lock of the night hit on CFF, CFFC 117. CFFC 118 uh, had a near win in that first round, and then my guy Eric Nolan got finished in the second round. So not a good look on the lock of the night predictions. That brings us to 29-9 and nine on the year over UFC, Bellator, and all the um, regional promotions that I cover. Um so 2099 for a 76% rate on their lock of the night predictions. Going over to the dog of the night plays, which I went two and two on this weekend. The two wins, Luke Trainer in Bellator survived that early onslaught from Sullivan Colley, came on harder at the ending of that first round and got that submission victory. Good one there around that plus 185 mark. Also around that plus 185 mark, the PFL dog of the night comes through in Ty Flores. I have no idea what people's confidence in DeLon Monte was all about. It's like they just only saw Ty Flores' fight against Dustin Jacoby from the Contender Series a couple years back and just assumed that's what they were always going to get. But Ty Flores has made some real improvements, especially since joining forces with Team Elevation. So... Those are the two dog plays that we hit. The two dog plays that we missed on were from both the CFFC cards. Both fights where we were winning 99% of the way and just fell short at the end. The first was Ronald Coleman having two and a half rounds of very solid work. The man ended up running out of gas and his opponent now was able to get that top position and pound him out and get the win. And then the other one at CFFC 118, I believe it was... 
Lucas, no, uh, what was it? Charlie Alexander, who had his opponent on skates on numerous occasions in that first round. And then with one second left, he ends up tapping out to a submission. We end up losing the dog of the night prediction there as well. But in terms of reads, I felt I was pretty spot on. Just couldn't get to the finish line with either of those guys. So again, ate some shit on the predictions this past week but hopefully able to turn around this weekend as we got like i said ufc 287 as week two or as well as week two of pfl which i'll be covering on the patreon so only video breakdowns for ufc this week pfl i'll be covering on the patreon link in the description below something else that I have been pushing over the last couple weeks as well as the YouTube membership perks, which I've just opened up uh, last week or the week prior to that. And the main thing, and you'll see this if you're watching this after Tuesday afternoon of Fight Week, top comment in the uh, in the comment section will be a link to the UFC Kansas City early odds analysis, where I'll be taking a quick look at the odds for not this week's card, but the following UFC weekend's card, which is headlined by Max Holloway and Arnold Allen. And I'll give you guys my quick thoughts on what I think about the odds at that point in time. Again, they are pre-taped thoughts, but at least a way for you guys to put my information up against your own and see if you want to jump in on some early lines. I did it for UFC 287. A couple of guys were able to take advantage on some of the spots that I ended up finalizing and still confirming that yes that is the side I'm even going after the tape so maybe you guys can find some spots on the Kansas City card before the public turns their eyes to it as well again every Tuesday of fight week dropping the early odds analysis for the following week's UFC event so we're going over Kansas City that's going to drop tomorrow YouTube membership Link, in, uh, link right at the top there. Just hit join right under the video here and you guys can get access to that. Appreciate everybody that's already hopped on as well. Something else I'm going to be adding to it is um, members only live streams. Once we hit about 20 members, then I'll put out a poll, see what date and time works best on a weekly basis for you guys so that we can talk whatever you guys want. Uh, members only live stream that will be added as soon as we get a little bit more people on the YouTube membership. All right, enough of tooting my own horn let's get right into the breakdowns let's get right into it kicking things off in the women's strawweight division we got 6-0 UFC debutante Jacqueline Amarin going up against 7-5 Sam Hughes starting off on the Amarin side she comes in as the former LFA strawweight champion with the squeaky clean 6-0 professional record she comes in and she takes on a pretty stiff test in her first fight she is a bjj black belt that trains out of american top team and you can see how hyped she is just based off her record alone she has finished all six of her opponents in the first round i believe one of them by knockout and the rest of them by submission but she does a very good job in terms of dragging fights to the ground and then just being patient and waiting for opportunity to get a dominant position where she can eventually get the finish more often than not coming by submission the one knock that we can give her though is the lack of competition that she faced on the regional scene the majority of her fights did take place in LFA, which is the premier organization or as mainly seen as the main feeder league to the UFC. But a lot of the women in that strawweight division really didn't have much to give in terms of resistance when Amarim faced them. Her most uh, experienced opponent that she went up against was Canadian Ashley Nichols. But we all know that, or at least the people that know the LFA game, know that Ashley Nichols is mainly a striker with a purple belt in jiu-jitsu, and she was pretty much squashed once this fight hit the mat. 
there's no way that Nichols was going to win that fight, especially with her inability to establish her striking game in that fight. But Amrim, there's still a lot of question marks in terms of what her striking looks like when she faces resistance. And if she's unable to get fights to the ground, how is she able to adapt and adjust her game and still get her hand raised? On the flip side, she's going up against Sam Hughes, who she did lose her last fight, but is still showing improvements ever since she moved her training camp down to Fortis MMA in Texas. She's very good in terms of the physical skills that she brings to the table, as well as her cardio game, which allows her to just keep a high pace. And even if she ends up losing the first round or two, she does a very good job in terms of winning that third round, even if she ends up losing the fight as a whole. But it really depends on her ability to establish that grappling heavy approach that she likes to use, just as she did against Elise Reed when she was able to pick up that third round TKO victory. But she uses a high volume and usually stays in her opponent's face and keeping them on her back foot, which allows her to just put that pace on them and just try to get that finish or even just win via decision. In her last fight against Pierre Rodriguez, very close fight. Third round obviously went to her. It was the first round that was left up to question, but I felt like her one mistake and that was even though she was moving forward and staying in her opponent's face, it seems like she was a little bit frozen up in terms of the output that she was throwing, but she seemed to start to pick it up in that third round and uh, you know a little bit too late at that point in time, especially with Pierre Rodriguez winning that second round without too much argument there. It really was that first round. So if she can get it going a little bit quicker, she might be able to find herself on the better end of decisions compared to her last fight. I'm excited about the debut of Amarim here. And I think that this is a good test for her in her first matchup against Sam Hughes, where she can showcase whether she can deal with somebody that's going to give her some, some adversity and whether she can battle back from it. I think Ultimately, the strong wrestling or at least strong grappling game of Amram is going to allow her to get the position she needs here against Sam Hughes so that she can uh, go on to eventually get a submission victory here. You know, Sam Hughes is good and her cardio is great and her movement is going to make it a little bit harder for Amram to get that takedown. But I think it's just a matter of time before she does. And I think she'll be able to lock up a submission victory quickly thereafter. But I want nothing to do with that minus 230 line. It's a little bit too wide for somebody making their UFC debut and hasn't really fought the most legitimate of competition on the regional scene to figure out whether she's the truth or not. Sam Hughes will push her. Sam Hughes might be a good underdog spot here, but I'm going to go with Amrim as I think she could actually be the real deal, but I want none of that minus 235. Maybe I'll take a stab on her submission prop here, but I'm going to go Amrim, Amrim by submission. Next up, we move on over to the men's featherweight division where we got 39 and 10, Shailan Nerdenbeka going up against 13 and 5, Steve Garcia. After stumbling in his UFC debut, Shai Lander Dembeka has pulled off three straight victories with the last one coming via emphatic finish. However, that was the one that started the whole James Krause debacle where uh, Derek Minner seemingly came in with a, a you know a pre-existing injury and we had never seen a line movement the way that we had seen that day as a ton of money came in on Shailan especially with him to win inside the distance uh, a method he had yet to win by in the UFC up until that point and we saw obviously what happened that night and the whole fallout from that the two fights prior to that are where we where we see Shailan do his best or 
his most obvious work, and that's using his strong, stocky frame to impose his will on his opponents with his strength, taking these guys to the ground and grinding them out from that top position. His striking game leaves a lot to be desired in regards to the technique that he brings to the table, as he just throws the kitchen sink in pretty much every single strike that he throws in hopes of either knocking you down, knocking you out, or closing the distance enough so that he can change levels and drag the fight to the ground. That's where he does his best work. The craziest thing about Shailan is the fact that he is entering his 50th fight this weekend, even though his first professional fight took place in 2016. We're talking about 50 fights in seven years. Absolutely crazy. But we know the sanctions and regulatory bodies uh, overlooking combat sports and that side of the world where he came from is not the same as what we see or are used to in the North American side of things. On the Steve Garcia side, he's had a roller coaster of a career so far. He's gone 2-2 two two through his four UFC fights, alternating wins and losses the entire time, starting his career off with, or starting his UFC career off on short notice against uh, Luis Pena, a fight that he took up a weight class, like I said, on short notice, and got completely outgrappled in that matchup with Luis Pena enjoying 14 minutes of control time in a 15-minute fight. He did manage to bounce back with a knockout victory over Charlie Ontiveros and then followed that up with a loss to Mahashate where he got knocked out in just over 70 seconds. But he managed to bounce back in his last fight against Charles, or sorry, Chase uh, Hooper where he was able to land big shot after big shot. He dropped Hooper over three or four times in that matchup before, before Herb Dean ended up seeing too much and waved that fight off. Garcia has had you know a good amount of experience throughout the MMA world even competing in Bellator and LFA before making his UFC debut I'm still trying to figure out what he's great at you know he seems to have some good punching power in his hands and good knockout power as we've seen in a couple fights and his takedown defense seems to be holding up pretty well against guys who have looked to actively get him to the mat but we just haven't seen enough from him, you know, with a full training camp in an extended fight to truly figure out how good or how bad he actually could be. So he's still a little bit of a wild card to me in my perspective uh, in the UFC. Given the unknowns of the Steve Garcia side, especially against UFC level competition and the roller coaster that he's been on, I'm a little bit skeptical about this one as well. Nerd and Becca will more than likely be able to land some takedowns, but my hesitancy comes when he's not able to keep him down, and Steve Garcia will likely have the striking advantage in terms of throwing shots from unorthodox, unorthodox angles that Nerd and Becca might not see coming and could potentially knock him out. Nurdenbeka definitely slows down as fights go on, and Steve Garcia might as well, but I still don't have that total confidence that Nurdenbeka is going to safely grind this out over 15 minutes. I am going to pick that as my prediction, though, as I think that usually it's smarter to go with the grapple-heavy fighter, but there are so many question marks on the Steve Garcia side, at least in my perspective, for any or at least for me to have much confidence in this matchup at all. But Official prediction, I'm going to go with the Chinese fighter here. I'm going to go with Shai Leonard and Becca, and I think he gets it done via decision. Next up, taking place at a catch weight of 160 pounds, we have 13-4 Ignacio Bahamundes going up against 16-5 Trey Ogden. Starting off on the Ignacio Bahamundes side, this guy is all violence and all output. 
it's more often than not that you'll see him eclipse that triple digit mark whenever he goes out there and fights because that's how he fights he likes to go out there put volume on his opponents using his kicks using his combinations and utilizing his height and reach advantage to do his best work from distance he just keeps his foot on the gas and does not allow his opponent any moment to rest which is where he's able to eventually break them and possibly even finish them like he did against roosevelt roberts He's a very fun fighter who trains out of Chicago with one of his main training partners being top-ranked welterweight Bilal Muhammad. And I think that's a very good pairing for him considering that Bilal will more than likely be able to help him with the grappling side of things, which is where Bahamundes probably is the weakest. However, he showcases a 95% takedown defense rate. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Roosevelt Roberts went 0 of 12 on takedowns that night. But Bahamundes is still growing. I just wish that we see him a little bit more active. It's been over a year since we've seen him inside the cage with the last fight that he was scheduled to have actually falling through due to some visa issues that he was dealing with. But seems like he's gotten that back in check now and we'll be seeing him throw down this weekend. And I'm very excited to do so because the guy is always fun when he goes out there and he competes. His opponent this weekend, Trey Ogden, was scheduled to compete a couple weeks ago, or I should say at least two weeks ago, when his opponent Manuel Torres unfortunately had to pull out of his matchup at UFC San Antonio due to him falling ill on weigh-in day. And that was just very unfortunate as I know Ogden was very uh, confident that he can go out there and get a big win against Torres, a fight that he was the underdog in. Ogden, I believe, is a far cry from the people or from the fighter that people think he is since he has a loss to Jordan Levitt on his record. And he proved those people wrong last time around as he pulled off a big upset victory over a bright prospect, Daniel Zellhuber. He utilized consistent forward pressure and a bunch of kicks that just threw Zellhuber off of his game. We He went one of nine on takedowns that night but it's the number nine that stands out to me the most which made, makes me believe that he kept Zahuber working and thinking about all the different types of attacks that was coming his way but it was ultimately the 71 significant strikes that the judges saw Ogden throw and land and ultimately ruled that fight in his in his favor but Ogden is a BJJ black belt and that's clearly where he does his best work Especially when you watch him on the regional scene, he's able to get his opponents to the ground and utilize his crafty submission game to choke these guys out. That's what I think he's going to end up needing if he wants to succeed at the UFC level. But we'll see what his wrestling game is like, as I think that's the biggest question mark that he brings to the table. I think this is a solid fight for Bahamundes to continue this winning streak that he's on. I think he'll be successful in terms of keeping Trey Ogden on the outside. And Trey might have a little bit of confidence coming off that Zell Huber fight, like I said. But I think once he starts feeling that that constant pressure and that output and that volume, I think it's going to start to give him some hiccups and he's going to start to freeze up on himself. That will bring out some desperation takedowns. And I think that Baja Mundes will be more than ready with his footwork and his counters, whether it's with that knee or that uppercut, to meet Trey Ogden and maybe even find a knockout in the spot. So I'm going to go Baja Mundes, Baja Mundes by knockout. Minus 385, a little bit wide for my liking. I think that's a lot to do with the uh, recency bias. Well, maybe not recency bias, but people still holding that Jordan Levitt loss over Trey Ogden's head. But I still think Bahamundes wins this fight, and I think it comes via knockout. Next up in the women's strawweight division, we got 9-5-1 Cynthia Calvillo going up against 8-3 Lupi Godinez. 
starting off on the Calvillo side. It's been a very unfortunate run for her over her last several fights as she's very much fallen from grace from where a lot of people expected her to be one of the best women or at least women prospects in the UFC even after she lost her first ever professional fight uh, or at least took her first professional loss at the hands of Carla Esparza. I believe that Calvio, you know, a lot of people were believing that her grappling game would be able to take her to the next level, but her lack of a, a striking game kind of has hold, hold her up and really put her on the back burner in a lot of people's minds. That performance that she had against Andrea Lee was a big eye-opener, and the fact that if she couldn't get her grappling game going, more often than not, she would fall behind in the striking realm. And that's exactly what happened in her last matchup against Nina Nunes, where Calvillo did land a couple takedowns, but was unable to secure enough control time on top for her to do good enough damage that the judges ended up seeing the damage that Nunes was landing on the feet and ultimately ruled that fight in her favor. I believe it was a split decision loss for Calvio, but I am not sure what that one judge was smoking as I really believe that Nunes did enough to clearly win that fight, even if it was a 29-28 in her favor. But Calvio, it seems like she's switching things up now. She's changed her training camp from the longtime Team Alpha Male gym that she came up with and now finds herself at Syndicate MMA in Las Vegas. Curious to see how that change will help her at this stage in her career, considering that she's 35 years old, and usually we don't see fighters usually make the improvements required to stay in that top level, or at least stay at this level in the MMA game. On the flip side for Lupi Godina, she's also coming off of a loss, but she's coming off of a loss in a fight that she was a minus 360 favorite in. She was unable to get her grappling game going against Angela Hill as Hill did a great job of putting punches on her, putting combinations on her. But I think the big reasoning as to why Lupi was only confident with shooting three takedowns in that matchup was the fact that Angela Hill kept flashing that knee up the middle, kept flashing that uppercut, and that kind of scared Godinez off in terms of wanting to change levels and not getting hit one one of those big shots. Godina still outstruck Angela Hill in terms of volume, but it was Angela Hill being the one landing the more impactful strikes, the much more significant strikes in the eyes of the judges, which is why Angela Hill was able to win that fight. However, I think Godina is a decent enough striker. She was just not the better striker that night. She clearly needs to get fights to the ground. And you see in the three victories that she has under the UFC banner, she's combined for a total of 18 takedowns over those fights, which is clearly where she does her best work. She's a very good BJJ practitioner as well, but she's a damn good wrestler as well. But she just needs to figure out how to blend in her takedowns behind her striking so that she can beat the upper echelon of the UFC's featherweight division or strawweight division, I should say. I think this is a solid fight for Godinez to bounce back with. I think that she'll be able to use her wrestling defensively here, keeping this fight in the striking realm, which is where I think she'll have a solid advantage over Cynthia Calvillo, who still seems to question herself and her abilities with her hands and her kicks. And I wouldn't be surprised if Godinez does actually look to take this to the ground, just to switch up the pace and the timing on Cynthia Calvillo and give her more to think about. But I just don't know how much Godinez is going to want to mix it up on the ground with Calvillo, who's a pretty slick jiu-jitsu player in her own right. I just don't know if the confidence level or the fact that she's 35 years old now will give Calvillo much confidence to try to 
get anything going in her own right, right? Obviously, teaming up with Syndicate might add a little bit of a different wrinkle to her game. But I think ultimately, as we see Godina stuff the takedowns, land some combinations and land some big strikes, it's going to start to demoralize Calvio, something we know that she's accustomed to doing in the past. And I think that will allow Godinez to start to pull away with this. My only concern is Godinez potentially getting stuck in bad positions and she might struggle to get out of. Just as she did in the Jessica Penne fight, just as she kind of did in the Carolina fight, but I think that that fight, her loss more so had to do with the size disadvantage and the short notice nature of that fight for her. But I think that Godinez is the better fighter. Odds a little bit too wide for me here, but I still think she gets her hand raised by decision. Next up in the middleweight division, we got 35 and 15 Gerald GM3 Mearshart going up against 10 and 2 Joe Pfeiffer. Starting off on the Gerald Mearshart side, this guy has made a living off of coming through as the underdog. And in three out of his last four fights, he's been the underdog. One of which he was a plus 440 underdog to Mahmoud Muradov, where he pulled off a victory against him. And last time around, he was a plus 240 underdog to hard-hitting Bruto Silva in a fight that he was controlling pretty much from the jump. And then eventually got that third round club and sub victory to pick up his ninth submission victory in the UFC. That is crazy as he's won 10 times in his 17 appearances at the big stage and nine of those coming by submission. He will tie Nate Diaz for fifth place in all-time submissions uh, in the UFC if he's able to pick up another one this weekend. But as of right now, he already holds the record for most submission victories in the middleweight division at nine, with second place, I believe, being at five. So he's almost already doubled with second places, and it's going to be very difficult for guys in the middleweight division to try to eclipse that record that he currently has. But he is a dog. He is a guy that has over 50 fights to his name and has fought the who's who of the middleweight division all over the world not just in the UFC as he had a plethora of uh, experience under his belt even before making the jump to the UFC but he's starting to craft himself a striking game here even though a lot of it is just coming from the kicks and he does a very good job utilizing that southpaw stance and using that kick which is a clear path to the body with you know, the majority of his opponents being uh, orthodox, he's able to rip that body, do some good work there, and then eventually change levels, dragging his opponents to the ground, or even hit, forcing his opponents to go for the uh, takedown so that he can take advantage and snatch up their neck and take that on home with him as well. But he clearly wants to get fights to the mat where he can use his top pressure, which is so crushing and so difficult to deal with for a lot of fighters, which is where he's able to get his hand raised normally. Joe Pfeiffer, on the other hand, is trying to make good after his very dominant UFC debut where he knocked out Alan Amadovsky. But I think he very much benefited from a very lackluster contender series card that he was on where he was the main event and the four fights prior to that didn't really go that well and Dana was pretty much upset with everything that happened and Joe Pfeiffer came out there in the main event of that card and knocked out his opponent in the second round, which got Dana White buzzing which obviously ended up in Pfeiffer getting signed to the UFC. But I think that there's a little bit too much hype on his name at this point in time. We're talking about a guy that got submitted by a striker in his first professional loss, which was not that long ago. Pfeiffer at his best was a guy that was able to drag his opponents to the ground, utilizing the jiu-jitsu game that he had crafted while training under the Daniel Gracie camp in Philadelphia. 
and he would either submit his opponents, ground and pound his opponents, or drag them to the distance and get his hand raised. I believe that only happened once in his professional career. But since he had his elbow injury that he suffered in the first shot that he had on the contender series back in 2020, he's mainly been utilizing a striking approach, showcasing fast hands and combinations and good power to knock his opponents out. But I, I think we got to pump the brakes a little bit on this B. Joe Pfeiffer train as as he starts taking steps up in competition. That's where we'll try to we'll truly see how good of a fighter he actually is and whether he has what it takes to compete against the upper echelon of the middleweight division. I think the safest spot on this entire card, it's going to be hella chalky, but it's probably the fight doesn't go to decision in this matchup. Either Joe Pfeiffer sticks a big shot on Gerald Mearshart early and puts him out, or Gerald Mearshart puts Joe Pfeiffer through that ringer, endures that early onslaught, and eventually finds a submission in the, sec- or in the second or third round of this matchup. I'm going to lean with the latter here. I think Gerald Mearshart, like I said earlier, makes a living off of pulling off the upset against guys who are favored to go out there and try to knock him out in that first round i think joe pfeiffer has not been tested against a veteran of gerald mearshart's level and i think that gerald will be able to control the distance here utilize his body kicks to just wear on the arms of joe pfeiffer here and then eventually start to take over in that second and third round where pfeiffer starts to slow down and we get another submission victory for mr gerald gm3 mearshart that's what I'm going to go with here to pick as the underdog. The line is atrocious, in my opinion, at plus 165. Either pick Joe Pfeiffer round one KO or just take that Gerald Mearshart, and I think you'll be able to cash either way. Fight doesn't go to decision, going to be hella chalky, but I think that's my favorite parlay piece on the entire card, if that's what you want to call it. But official prediction, Gerald Mearshart by submission round two or round three. Moving up to the heavyweight division, we got short notice 8-1 Carl Williams stepping in to fight 16-11 Chase Sherman. Last time we saw Carl Williams was less than a month ago when he picked up a decision victory over Lucas Dreski where he utilized a takedown heavy approach to grind his opponent out and get his hand raised by decision. That is the name of the game for Carl Williams, who used to be a light heavyweight, but has taken the last couple fights now at heavyweight, and it seems like he's enjoying that cushy lifestyle of not having to cut weight anymore and utilizing that big frame of his to impose his grappling heavy style. His striking game still needs a little bit of work, and he uses that one-two down the middle effectively just so that he can blend in his takedowns behind it and just get to work on top of his opponents. But I have a little bit of a question mark in regards to his cardio. Like, it played out well for him over his last couple fights over Jimmy Lawson and obviously Lucas Tresky. But as he starts taking steps up in the UFC, that's not going to work out that well for him against guys that are going to be able to stuff the takedowns that are coming a little bit with a little bit less... Uh, oomph on them in the second and third rounds and then he's gonna have to deal with better strikers who could take advantage of his slow pace and possibly even shittier uh, striking defense and I want to try to use that shittier word in a little bit more of a respectful way because I'm big on Carl Williams right I he came through as a plus 200 underdog for me on the contender series and he came through as a decent favorite against Lucas Tresky last time around as well But like I said, as he starts taking steps up in competition, it's going to get harder for him to rely on this type of approach, especially when opponents are able to keep fights upright. Chase Sherman is 
on a little bit of a slump, I should say, in his second stint in the UFC. He had originally gotten cut just before COVID, but managed to make his comeback after picking up a couple wins on the regional scene, but has put together a 2-5 and five record since returning. He snapped a four-fight losing streak uh, two fights ago when he was able to finish Jared Vandera in the third round of their fight back in July of 2022. But he took on short notice Waldo Cortez Acosta last time around, and Waldo more than doubled him on strikes that night and won that fight by decision. Sherman obviously has aligned himself with Killcliffe FC over his last couple training camps, and I think that's been working out pretty well for him, and I think that we can see him showcase that against more favorable matchups than he's had over those five losses that he's taken, right? Guys like Alexander Romanov who are easily able to take him to the mat and find that quick submission victory, or a guy like Waldo Cortez Acosta who just has better footwork, better output, better cardio, and just a better overall boxing game. But Sherman can still go out there and throw hands with the best of them, or at least the mediocre of them in the heavyweight division. And he has good enough knockout power to take advantage of anybody who is not up to task in terms of wanting to go out there and throw down with him. As high as I've been on Carl Williams in the past, I feel like he's going to run into some issues here with Chase Sherman. I think Chase will do a good enough job in terms of staying safe even when he gets taken down in the early portions of this fight. And as he continuously works back to his feet, yes, Carl will continue to hit takedowns, but I think it's going to get harder and harder for him to come by in the second and third rounds, especially when he's going to be dealing with some of the big strikes coming back his way from the Chase Sherman side. I just hope Chase believes in himself in the second and third rounds and throws those combinations and lands those big shots because I think he can take advantage of the sketchy gas tank and the short notice nature in which Carl Williams accepted this fight. Chase was the one getting ready for this for this for this specific date. Carl Williams just fought a, a month ago and who knows what he did after that fight. Maybe he just fucked off for a little bit and was just like, you know what, I might just enjoy this heavyweight lifestyle and just do what I want, not, you know, train a little bit, but not go full hog and not know that I will potentially be accepting a fight a couple weeks later. Chase Sherman, again, preparing for this, training with the Killcliffe FC guys. Carl Williams, good top pressure, but not good enough in my opinion. And I think he's going to eat those big shots from Chase Sherman and Chase Sherman will eventually come away with a knockout probably in the second or third round of this matchup. Odds, way too wide. Plus 380, on Chase Sherman and again I know Chase isn't the best heavyweight out there and Carl Williams looked great in, a, in his last fight but I think he's still susceptible to get knocked out by these higher level heavyweights and Chase Sherman could potentially be that guy could be Chase Sherman here by knockout round two Heading back down to the women's strawweight division, we got 18 and 10 veteran Michelle Watterson Gomez going up against 10 and 1 Luana Pinedo. Starting off on the Watterson-Gomez side, she's looking to avoid the first ever three-fight losing streak of her career, and I think that the 37-year-old Watterson-Gomez still has enough kick in her to go out there and pick up a win in the UFC's, uh, or at least at this point in her UFC career. She is a very solid striker. Obviously, you can take that from her karate hottie nickname. She does a great job with her kicks from the outside and staying at distance and waiting for the proper opportunity to close the distance using her straight shots down the middle or using her kicks to just try to keep her opponents at bay. She has a very underrated grappling game, which we saw a little bit of in her last fight against Amanda Lemos, a fight where two judges actually scored the first round in her favor, until she eventually started to feel the power of Lemos and faltered under that, went for a desperation takedown, got her neck snatched up, and she was forced to tap after that. 
she showcased in that fight though that she can still compete against some of these women in this division and i think that she still has enough like i said enough kick in this uh at this point in her career to still get some good wins and be a tough enough test for up-and-coming prospects looking to break into the rankings of the ufc strawweight division Speaking of trying to break into the rankings, we got Luana Pinero, who is currently 2-0 in the UFC, and she's looking to add the biggest name to her record this weekend if she's able to get her hand raised. She is the significant other of UFC flyweight Matthias Nicolau, who's also on a pretty good run of his own, and you can tell that she is taking her fighter lifestyle very seriously as both of them are training on a daily basis. She's a very strong and powerful fighter with 8 of her 10 wins coming inside the distance. That does obviously include the disqualification victory that she picked up over Random Marcos a couple fights ago. And I have my suspicions about that matchup. I think that she kind of gassed herself out utilizing those big judo throws that take a lot of strength and a lot of energy. And I think that she started to see that Randa was starting to come on a little bit. And she saw an opportunity to take that exit. And that's exactly what she ended up doing. I don't want to completely shit on her because she came back and had a very good matchup in her last fight against Sam Hughes where she clearly won the first two rounds and for some reason two judges scored the third round for her even though I thought that Sam Hughes did enough to get her uh, to, to win that third round but obviously still not enough to win the first two rounds. Pinheiro seemed a little bit more composed in that matchup which is why I think she showcased better cardio over the 10 minutes than she did in the four minutes that she fought against Ronda Marcos. She's a decent striker with a good top game as well when she's able to get opponents to the mat, but I still question her ability to fight the higher levels of opponents that the UFC has to offer. Again, the level of opponents that she's been facing, a little bit skeptical or a little bit sketchy, I should say. You know, Sam Hughes, solid fighter. We touched on her earlier in this podcast, but I think that we're going to see better and better versions of Sam Hughes as she settles into Fortis MMA, and maybe if they ever rematch down the road, things might go a little bit differently. But... Pinero could absolutely prove me wrong if she goes out there and has a solid performance this weekend. I still have my question marks about her, though. I've been trying to fade Luana Pinero over the last couple of fights, and this might be the fighter to finally cross the finish line. I wish I had a little bit more confidence with it, but I think that Watterson Gomez can do a good enough job with her movement from the outside, utilizing her kicking game, and utilizing her wrestling to wear on that gas tank of, Pin of Pinero and take over the later that this fight goes. But Pinheiro, if she showcases the discipline that she did in the Sam Hughes fight and does a good enough job in terms of landing effective damage to the first 10 minutes of this fight, she should she could be able to pick out another decision victory. But I'm going to lean with the experience and the veteran savvy of a girl like or a woman like Michelle Watterson Gomez. And I think she wins this fight by decision. Prelim headliner is up next and it takes place in the middleweight division as we have 17 and 8 returning Kelvin Gastelum going up against 30 and 9 Chris Curtis. The last time we saw Kelvin Gastelum in the cage was actually August of 2021. It's been a while since he's been able to see any action as he's had some fights he's been forced to pull out of. Most recently back in January when he was scheduled to headline the first event of the year for the UFC against Nasruddin Imovov. Unfortunately, he dealt with a very bad uh, tooth laceration or I don't know if he lost his teeth or his gum or something. But you can see on his IG he posted about it. He took a very bad shot from one of his teeth. Uh, 
training partners near the end of that training camp and had to have emergency dental surgery to put his gums and teeth back into place. So uh, very unfortunate uh, luck that Gastelum's been having over the last year and a half to two years. But Knock on wood, hopefully he's able to make the date this weekend as I think that he still has a lot to showcase for a lot of people um, in the middleweight division. He's run on to a lot of tough times over the last couple of years, even with when he does step into the cage. He's only 31 years old and I'm just finding out now that his birthday is actually two days after mine. So uh, still pretty young in the game in terms of trying to go out there and get high level wins. But just looking at the one in five run that he's on over his last six fights, losing to Israel Adesanya, losing a split to Darren Till back in 2019. The sketchiest one was the one after that against Jack Hermanson where he loses via heel hook and just over 80 seconds of that fight taking place. Bounced back with the win over Ian Heinish, but then lost his next two fights to top contenders in the middleweight division, Robert Whitaker and Jared Cannonier. Again, those most of those guys are pretty much very high level guys, and you can't really blame him too much for coming out on the short end of the stick there. But the big difference here between the last time that he fought and what he's going to be bringing to the table now is the new training camp that he's with. For a long time, he's been training with the guys at King's MMA in California, but as of late, he's been spending time down at Fight Ready in Arizona, and I'm very curious to see how those guys have changed the game of Gaslam and try to exploit the advantages that he showcased throughout his career where he's put together such a good record. We've seen guys like Henry Cejudo and Davison Figueiredo have tremendous amount of success with the fight-ready guys. And I think a lot of that has to do with the game planning and the execution that they're able to bring to the table. One of the things that they bring to the table, I believe, is the calf-kicking game that they implement into a lot of their opponents. And I'm curious to see if Gaslam is going to be taking that into his game and, and trying to use that this weekend. But another big part of the fight-ready game is the wrestling. And that's a part of Gastelum's game that I believe is largely overlooked. Because if you look at the earlier parts of his career, he uses it very effectively and utilizes his underrated jiu-jitsu game to choke out opponents or get those dominant positions and do some good work from on top. On the Chris Curtis side of things, he started his UFC career off with a bang going 3-0 and cashing as a huge underdog in two of those matchups. Unfortunately, he ran into Jack Hermanson, who had a pretty boring but effective game plan against him as he pretty much stayed on the outside of that entire matchup and just kicked Chris Curtis, and Curtis was unable to get any offense off because he just couldn't reach the long and mobile Jack Hermanson. But Curtis rebounded with a big knockout victory over Joaquin Buckley last time around as he countered a kick from Buckley and was able to put his lights out. Buckley looked like he was getting into his groove that night, but Curtis had other plans as he was just waiting for the proper opportunity to counter, and he found his opportunity, and he made good on it, eventually getting that knocked out and getting his hand raised. He's a tremendously experienced guy who had a a plethora of fights even before making his UFC debut, and I think that's helping him, especially as he's been fighting killer after killer at the UFC level, and that's no different from the matchup he has across from him this weekend. I think this is probably the most favorable matchup that Calvin Gaslam has had during this entire slump, maybe with the exception of the Ian Heinish fight. I think Gaslam, with his striking as and his durability, should be able to withstand that big power coming his way from Chris Curtis, and maybe even mixing his takedowns behind that and utilizing his underrated jiu-jitsu game uh, and wrestling game. And like I said in Gaslam's background, the fight-ready guys are very good at 
devising a game plan and allowing their fighters to go out there and execute it to a T. And a guy like Gastelum, who's looking to rejuvenate his career, a guy who's still only 31 years old, a guy who still has high level talent and skills can still go out there and get wins. There's a reason he's the favorite in this matchup. I think the odds makers made a mistake by making him the making him the underdog, but I think that his durability should hold up here against Chris Curtis's big power, and then his diversity and skills should be able to help him get this win more than likely by decision. The only reason I don't have more confidence in this though is what if there is that like that ring rust, right? The last time Gaston was in the cage was August of 2021, and you don't want to have any rust against a guy like Chris Curtis. But if Gaston can come back even looking like 80% of what he used to at his best and utilizing the game plan that Fight Ready is going to give him, I think he wins this fight without too much issue, which is why my final prediction for this matchup is going to be Gaston via decision. We kick off the pay-per-view portion of the card in the bantamweight division as we have the youngster Raul Rosas Jr. coming in with a clean 7-0 record going up against 8-1 Christian Rodriguez. Now, Raul Rosas is obviously known as the young phenom who got signed to the UFC at 17 years old and made his UFC debut at 18 years old only a couple months later. He picked up a big win over Jay Perron where he was able to get the back relatively quickly against him and sink in the rear naked choke to get his hand raised. It was the fight before that against Mando Gutierrez on the contender series where we finally saw him stretch to a decision, something he had yet to see before that fight. But we saw some of the potential holds that he has in his game because of his aggressive grappling style. He's always looking to get fights to the ground and sometimes he's a little bit overzealous in trying to secure a dominant position that he gives up that position allowing his opponent to get on top of him. And luckily for him, it seemed like Gutierrez had some very questionable fight IQ as he kept engaging in the ground battle with Raul, allowing Raul to eventually find that reversal needed to get back on top and get back into a dominant position. But he's just so relentless and aggressive with that style that a lot of opponents are going to find it hard to get that upper hand on Rosas Jr., his striking game clearly needs a lot of work as it's mainly just a kicking game where he can stay safe from distance and plotting his moment to eventually close that distance, change levels and get the fight to the ground. But as we all know, as these youngsters and undefeated guys keep taking steps up in competition, it gets harder and harder for them to utilize that one dimensional game to continuously get their hand raised. His goal is to be the youngest champion in UFC history and given that John Jones holds that record right now at achieving that uh, light heavyweight championship at 23 years old back in 2011, Rosas Jr. still has just under five years to try to capture that goal but he has a lot of experience he still needs to accrue if he hopes to achieve that in my opinion. He's going up against a very highly touted, or at least highly touted amongst the diehards in the MMA world, Christian Rodriguez, who in my opinion is one of the more, or at least a, a big dark horse in terms of prospects. He's a Rufus Sport product who has a tremendous amount of experience under his belt, even on the amateur ranks. And even when you go back and watch his amateur fights, you see how poised and disciplined this kid is and know what kind of prospect he actually is as well. On the contender series shot that he got back in 2021, he won that fight against uh, Junior Cortez, Tracy, Tracy Cortez's brother, but uh, he did not get a contract that night because he missed weight. 
So he went back to the regionals, took a short notice fight, won that fight, and then got the call from the UFC to jump in on short notice up a weight class against Jonathan Pierce. And he made the weight, obviously, up a weight class and made a damn good account of himself, even in a fight where he was a plus 300 underdog. It was clear that the grappling advantage as well as the size, height, and strength advantage that Jonathan Pierce was enjoying in that fight was the true difference maker in that matchup. But Rodriguez, like I said, made a very good account of himself, got out of bad positions, reverse positions, and was getting the better of the striking realm whenever they were striking. And that's where Rodriguez is best, his striking. He's a pinpoint accurate striker, very calm and composed in those spots, a sniper from range, throws in combinations, and does very good does a very good job with his footwork to maximize his striking combinations. Again, his takedown defense needs a little bit of help, but he does very good in the fact that he can create transitions, create scrambles where he's able to get back on top or get back to his feet where he can get back to his handiwork with his striking. He's a very, very highly touted prospect who I think is being overshadowed by the Raul Rosas Jr. train that everybody is focused on at this point in time. I think the guy with the brighter future out of both of these guys is Christian Rodriguez. In my opinion, he's the more complete fighter here. He's the better striker and he has a good enough uh, grappling game to handle and be good enough defensively against these other bantamweights. Obviously, Rosas is an exception because of how high-level his jiu-jitsu game is. But like I was laying out in his Mando Gutierrez fight, he makes mistakes. He's just been lucky that he hasn't fought guys that can take advantage of him making those mistakes yet. I think a guy as well-rounded as Rodriguez will be able to. He will be able to reverse those positions, stay out of the threatening submission game, and try to keep this fight in the striking realm where he'll have a clear advantage and possibly even have the extent to maybe even knock out Rosas Jr. here. So yes, there will be takedowns that Rosas is going to land early in this matchup, but I think the poise and the veteran savvy that Rodriguez seems to have even this early in his career is going to start to shine through, and I think anybody that got in at that plus 200 number on Rodriguez uh, early last week or even late last week is going to be laughing to the bank once they're able to cash that ticket. So yes, Rosas Tremendous talent, don't get me wrong, very high-level wrestling and, and grappling, or I should say, very high-level jiu-jitsu. His wrestling, a little bit desperate at times, could get him into some trouble, and I think that this is the fight that will likely showcase those shortcomings in the rest of his game. So give me Christian Rodriguez here to pull off the upset to kick off the main card. Next up, we move to the welterweight division where we have 23-9 Kevin Holland going up against 29-6 Santiago Ponzinibbio. Now, Kevin Holland probably learned a very valuable lesson last time around against Wonderboy Thompson in a December main event down at UFC Orlando, as he probably should have taken more of a grapple-heavy approach, which was his path to least resistance or of least resistance against a much better striker in Wonderboy Thompson. Now, Kevin Holland had a pretty damn good first round, but really started to fall behind the, the eight ball in that second round as Wonderboy started to utilize his superior speed and striking advantage and was really chopping away at Kevin Holland. But it seemed to be a hand injury that Kevin Holland suffered in that first round, which was the cause of him slowing down. And now he's only just under three months removed from that hand injury and is still dealing with it from what, I'm, from what I was able to gather. 
he has a podcast that he runs and their most recent episode which they shot about two or three weeks ago you see him still having some sort of hand wrap of some sort on his right hand which is not a good sign going into this matchup against a hard hitter like Santiago Ponzinibbio. I wonder why he's deciding to jump in uh, so quickly after suffering that hand injury and why he's going in compromised into this matchup. That right hand is his bread and butter. So why is he compromising himself by taking this fight so quickly after having it injured? I have no idea why. But at his best, let's say he's at his best, he utilizes his sniper-like approach with his striking from distance to beat his opponents up from distance and eventually find that knockout blow. He has a very crafty submission game as well when he can get his opponents hurt, especially in that club and sub situation. But he clearly prefers keeping fights on the feet where he can just chip away at his opponents from distance and just wait to snipe them and eventually put their lights out. Santiago Ponzinibbio is clearly not the fighter that he was before his hiatus of two and a half years that uh, he had to take because of this near career ending illness that took over his body. Since that, or since that layoff, he's gone 2-3 and three, and he was close to picking up another loss in his last matchup against Alex Morono, a fight that two judges actually had him down on, but luckily he was able to find that chin of Morono in the third round and get his hand raised. But he's a little bit slower and he's a little bit less aggressive than we were used to seeing before his layoff and I think the age and all of that mixed together is starting to catch up up to him at this point his veteran savvy and his experience is still coming through for him which is why he was able to get those two wins over Miguel Baeza and Alex Morono but as he continues to fight the higher echelon of the guy or of this welterweight division I think we're going to see that speed disadvantage and that just lack of killer instinct that he has at times start to catch up to him it was his leg kicking game and just his aggressiveness that got him his wins and got him his seven fight winning streak before he had to take that hiatus. But I just don't see enough of it at this point in time, which is why I just it's it's tough for me to get back on the Ponzinibbio train like I used to be before. The big red flag for me in this matchup, which is why I don't want to bet it at all, maybe take a poke on the fight doesn't go to decision if it's at a good enough number, is that hand injury that Kevin Holland is dealing with. No, I, I, again, I, I hammered it to death in his background a little bit earlier, but I don't get why he's taking this fight. There's a big risk in this, especially if he ends up losing it. But I know he has that built-in excuse in saying, okay, if I lose this fight, it's because my hand was injured. Then why take the fight to begin with? I'm still going to pick him to win this fight because I think his speed and power advantage will eventually be able to find that chin of Ponzinibbio. But he even laid out in his podcast He's taking on this challenge without one of his big weapons, which is that right hand. But I feel like one of his elbows, one of maybe even his left hand, or maybe even a big kick will be able to find that chin of Ponzinibbio and put him down and out. But I would rather invest in the fight doesn't go to decision in this matchup rather than trust the chalky line on Kevin Holland, especially a compromised Kevin Holland. So even if you don't... Uh, agree with my hesitancy in Kevin Holland just know what you're getting yourself into knowing you have a compromised Kevin Holland going into this matchup still think he wins just no big confidence on it I'm gonna go Kevin Holland by knockout the fight doesn't go to decision probably the best way to take this fight Next up in the bantamweight division, we got a barn burner here between 19 and 6, Rob Font, and 16 and 3, Adrian Yanez. 
starting off on the Rob Fawn side of things. He's fallen on tough times now, being on a two-fight losing streak against Jose Aldo and Marlon Vera. But before that, he picked up his first win in his first ever main event slot against Cody Garbrandt back in May of 2021. That was a fight where we got to see what Rob Font is at his best. He utilizes good footwork, good combinations, good output, and a nasty jab that he can follow up the rest of his offense with. He has a sneaky ground game as well with some sneaky chokes, but more often than not, he prefers to keep fights in the upright position where he can utilize his footwork and his output, which is usually more than enough for his opponents to handle. You see, even in the losses that he's taken in his last couple fights, that he will outstrike his opponents in terms of volume, but it's those guys that are able to land those big shots that can hurt him and drop him and potentially even finish him, which is where he ends up losing his fights. But I still think that he has a lot to offer at this stage in his career, especially as that guy that's going to be... I don't want to call him a gatekeeper because I feel like that's going to be a, a bit of an insult to him, but a gatekeeper to the guys that are the prospects looking to break through into the top five to seven of this bantamweight division. But he's still a very tough out, and if his durability is still intact somewhat, he's going to be a very tough out for a lot of opponents, especially with that constant jab, that constant output, and just staying in his opponent's face and pushing them to the brink every single time out. His opponent this week in Adrian Yadez is just waiting for his opponent, his his moment to break out. And this is clearly the toughest opponent that he's going to have at this point in, in his career. He's put together a solid resume through his run through his first five UFC fights, finishing four of his opponents. The only guy unable to get him out of there was, or he was unable to get out of the cage was Davy Grant. Davy Grant is a tough son of a gun, so I don't blame Giannis for not being able to finish him. But we saw what could potentially happen when Giannis is facing someone that could give it just as much as he, or that can take it just as much as he can give it. We saw Randy Costa have a tremendous first round against Adrian Giannis uh, with Costa putting volume on him, sticking him with the jab and just staying in his face. But as we all know, Randy Costa, horrible gas tank, horrible gas tank management. And then we see him fall off in that second round and eventually get knocked out, just as he always does in pretty much every single fight that we see him in. Davy Grant, a little bit too wild and reckless, but is always putting his output out there, but just always gets caught by the cleaner and crisper strikers, just like he did against Adrian Yanez. I have high hopes for Giannis as I think he's one of the brighter prospects that the UFC has to offer as his boxing combinations are some of the best that we've ever seen, especially with the guy with the amount of experience that he has. His ground game is still TBD considering that we haven't seen anybody successfully take him to the ground and try to hold him down other than on the regional scene where Miles Johns was able to pick up a win over him by holding him against the cage, landing some takedowns and getting some decent control time. But you got to believe he's worked on his game since then. And I'm curious to see how he would deal with somebody that would look to take him to the ground over and over again. At 135 pounds, you have high-level grapplers like Aljamain Sterling, Marab Davalishvili, and even the returning Henry Suhudo that can challenge him in those realms. Can they get past that striking game of Giannis? That's to be determined. And even what's to be determined is can Giannis get past the biggest name that he's faced to date? This is a big step up for Adrian Yanez, in my opinion. And I think that the output style and jabbing of Rob Font is going to give Yanez a lot of trouble. 
we saw that approach from Randy Costa work very effectively in that first round, albeit Randy Costa also had that unorthodox kicking game and head kicks that he was able to throw in there, something that Rob Font might not be able to do. But something that Rob Font will be able to do is keep up that pressure, keep up that cardio, and keep up the consistency of the jab and sticking it in Yanez's face and frustrating him. Yanez might just say fuck it at a certain point and start throwing big haymakers in return. But I believe in the footwork and ability of Rob Font to stick with that jab and know that he can take a couple shots from Yanez compared to, you know, uh, Vera and Aldo, who I think hit a little bit harder than Yanez. A lot of Giannis's finishes have come from the accumulation of him landing combinations. So yes, he might be able to land a shot here or there, but I don't know if it's going to completely stifle Rob Font the way that Aldo and Vera were able to in his past two fights. It's possible his durability is completely shot to shit and Giannis might be able to drop him and hurt him with that one shot that he might be able to land, the first one or two that he can land from his combinations. But I'm going to lean with the veteran here. I'm going to lean with the guy that showcases that he has the style to give a guy like Giannis fits. And like I said, this is going to be the first real test for Giannis, in my opinion. And I'm going to go with Rob Font here. Rob Font by decision. Again, I'd have a little bit more confidence if I can believe that Rob Font's durability is completely not shot. There is obviously that hesitance in my head. But I'm going to stick with Rob Font here. His output his volume and his jab is going to be the key to victory and I'll pick Rob Vaughn to win this fight by decision. Moving over to the co-main event which is taking place in the welterweight division. We have 21 and 5 Gilbert Burns and 35 and 16 Jorge Masvidal. Starting off on the Gilbert Burns side of things, he's coming off a pretty quick and easy victory over Neil Magny back in January after he accepted the call out from Magny who had uh, I can't recall who he had beaten, uh, Daniel Rodriguez. After Neil Magny beat D-Rod, uh, he called out Gilbert Burns, which I knew was a big no-no, and we found out quickly why, as Gilbert Burns was clearly the better jiu-jitsu player in that matchup. Burns has definitely come a long way since what he was originally in the lightweight division, which he had an 8-3 and record in, but was unable to get past the higher levels that the lightweight division had to offer. But it was not that long after in August 2019 that Burns accepted a short notice fight up a weight class against Alexei Konchenko that he won that fight and never looked back. He put together four straight victories to eventually challenge the champion at the time, Kamar Usman, which is a fight that he ended up coming short in. He bounced back with a solid decision victory over Wonderboy Thompson in a fight that he was continuously able to get the fight to the ground and win that fight on the judges' scorecards in rounds one and round three. Then he followed that up with a big loss, I should say. Well, not a big loss, but a big showing against Hamzat Chemaev in a fight that he ended up losing, but showcased that Chemaev is maybe not that mythical goat that everybody expected him to be as Gilbert Burns was able to showcase, uh, you know, Chumaya fighting his first legitimate test and seeing what could actually happen. Like I said, Burns bounced back against Neil Magny back in January, but I do think that he's starting to showcase that he's on the back end of his career. You know, he's 35, 36 years old, and sure, his striking game is decent, but he does his best work when he's able to drag opponents to the ground and utilize his superior BJJ. If he's not able to do that, and then if his striking is not good enough to overcome his opponent, that's when things start to get a little bit iffy. 
Now, talking about his opponent, Jorge Masvidal, who comes into his 52nd professional MMA fight this weekend, it's clear that this Miami card hinged on his availability and obviously his ability to sell tickets down there, considering he is the self-proclaimed king of Miami. This is a big matchup for him and a big spot because he's currently on a three-fight losing streak, albeit against the top three guys in the division. He lost two times to Kamaru Usman, both title fights, and then lastly, a grudge match, he lost to Colby Covington. Now, this is another top five, top six welterweight that he's going up against, but this will be a big telltale whether he still has what it takes to compete at this high level or if he should decide to hang it up now. I do think that he's done a great job in terms of capturing the lightning in the bottle that he had after knocking out Ben Askren, but I think it's great that he finally got his flowers as being one of the better guys at this weight class throughout his career. His slick boxing and uh, the way that he's able to set up traps with his combinations is just a further testament to how good of a striker he actually is. And he has very deceiving power as well, as we saw in the Darren Till fight. He's just so good at managing his distance, countering his opponents, and then, like I said, setting up traps and springing those traps and eventually finding the knockouts against his opponents. He's a very high-level fighter still, and I don't think that this three-fight losing streak that he's on uh, is something that we should look at and be like, "Mm, you know, let's, let's, let's throw him away. It's all about styles. And I think that he has a decent style ahead of him this weekend to potentially showcase that he's still one of the top guys in this welterweight division. The line in this fight makes no sense to me at all. Masvidal, even though he's 0-3 in his last three fights, should not be a plus 380 underdog to Gilbert Burns. Now, we know that the the takedown defense on Jorge Masvidal, very solid. His get-up game, even better. So I think that if Gilbert Burns wants to go out there and try to out-wrestle Jorge Masvidal, he might be able to get him to the ground one or two times, but I think he's going to struggle to hold him there. And then in the striking realm, Masvidal is the better striker. Yes, Burns hits with some good power, and if the durability of Masvidal is truly gone, okay, I'll take this out on the chin, but I think that Masvidal will be able to set up the better shots and be able to get off better offense in the striking realm and maybe even knock out Gilbert Burns in this fight. The reason he wasn't able to have much striking success against Colby Covington was Colby was staying in his face with endless output, limitless volume, and that's why he was unable to set up big shots and land much of his own offense. But Gilbert Burns doesn't have that style. Gilbert Burns does not have the gas tank nor the cardio to do what Colby Covington was able to do to Jorge Masvidal. Nor does he have the wrestling that Kamar Usman had to have that threat against Masvidal. I think Masvidal is in a perfect position to spring the upset as a big underdog in this spot. And I think that people are forgetting that every fight is a different puzzle. Gilbert Burns, sure, he had a close fight against Hamza Chemaev, but maybe that was just us getting brought to reality of what Chemaev's skill set is actually at with him finally fighting somebody of substance. I think Masvidal is very live in this fight, and I'm going to pick him to win this co-main event in front of his hometown Miami crowd, and I think he gets it done by knockout. Time for the main event of the evening. It takes place in the middleweight division, and it is for the middleweight title, where we got 7-1 Alex Pereira looking to go 2-0 in the MMA cage against 23-2 Israel Adesanya. Starting off on the Alex Pereira side, I can't recall the last time somebody rose so quickly within the UFC, earned a title shot, and won the title. 
Obviously, his opponent this weekend did something similar, but Pereira did it even quicker. It took him three fights to get a title shot all in the span of a year and he made good on it even though he was a couple minutes away from potentially losing a decision. Pereira, we know what he's good at. He's a heavy kickboxer with a lot of big power in his punches, especially that lead left hook when he's able to land it cleanly just like he did against Sean Strickland. His grappling game still needs a little bit of work, as we've seen uh, even as Olarasania have some good grappling success against him. But he had a very good run to the top, considering that he didn't really fight a very wrestle-heavy threat in the past. And I think the UFC knew what they were doing to eventually set up this rivalry matchup. And being the only real guy that Adesanya hadn't faced yet in the MMA cage, that could potentially give him some issues. But that is Pereira style. He is a heavy hitter and we saw it come to fruition for him last time around as he finished Israel Adesanya in the fifth round of their title fight. Flipping on over to the Adesanya side, through 21 fights he had yet to taste defeat until he tried to do something that a lot of people were not able to do, which was go to another weight class, up a weight class specifically, and try to capture the title from the uh, the champion in that division. That's what he tried to do against Jan Blachowicz in his 21st professional MMA fight, and that was the first time he tasted defeat in MMA competition. He was untouchable up until that point, utilizing his superior striking style to just pick opponents apart from distance, either knocking them out or winning by a clean decision while he would usually never face much resistance in those fights. He, after losing the fight against Blahovich, he ended up defending the title a couple more times, two of those fights against opponents he had already beaten in the past, and that's when he ran into Alex Pereira in that fourth title defense afterwards that lost to Blahovich. That's why this fight was so intriguing is because of the past history that he had with Pereira in the kickboxing world where he was already 0-2 against him. Although the second fight, he was on his way to potentially winning that fight by decision, he ended up getting knocked out in that fight, which is just ironic considering how the last fight with, the, with them played out back in November, where Adesanya was up 3-1 to one on the judges' scorecards, and all he needed to do was cruise to a decision in that fifth round, but Pereira stepped on the gas, and he was able to get that victory over Adesanya. It's always tough to pick against a guy that has that fight-ending power that Alex Pereira had. Or has, especially what he showcased in his last fight. We saw it play out, right? Adesanya can do what he wants. He can go out there and win three rounds and try to cruise to a decision. But he has to stay away from that big power of Pereira. But the mastermind that is Israel Adesanya, the mastermind that is his coach, Eugene Behrman, I feel like they can take things from that first fight and implement it into the second fight and try to go out there and win this fight a little bit cleaner than they did the last time or than they were almost close to doing last time. Whether that means mixing in a little bit more grappling, showing that, you know, that third round, let's try to make that third round a third and fourth round where we have two rounds of heavy grappling. Because we saw Pereira very much struggle to get off of his back when he was taken down. So let's try to set up some more takedown opportunities behind that striking game of Adesanya. We know he can stay safe enough within the first four rounds of that big power from Pereira with his leg kicking, with his movement, with his jab. And then let's try to set up some more takedowns behind that. Or they just take a completely different approach. One thing that Adesanya talked about in an interview that he did shortly after that matchup was that he wishes that he didn't give up as many calf kicks early in that fight as he felt it rendered his uh, his movement a little bit 
it, it pretty much impacted his movement later on in that fight, which is why he wasn't able to get away from those big shots in that fifth round. Still, I feel like a guy like Adesanya can make them changes necessary to overcome somebody who only has that big knockout power to rely on in their matchup. I kind of talked about this earlier in one of my articles, but this kind of um, reminds me of Kamaru Usman and Leon Edwards, uh, their second and third fights. But the difference being that everybody in the second fight was like, or sorry, going into the third fight was like Leon Edwards just has that one shot that he needs to hit Usman with. That's the only way he wins that fight because Usman will be able to get the fight to the ground and grind him out. The difference being that that's the only path that Usman really had to win that fight. And all Edwards needed to do was shore up his takedown defense. And he did. He was able to keep that fight in the striking realm where he had the clear advantage. The difference between that matchup and this one with Izzy and Pereira is that this fight will more than likely take place in the striking room, just as it did in the first fight. Maybe Izzy is the one that implements the grappling a little bit more, but even if he doesn't do it successfully, he can still go out there and win the striking exchanges, just as he did in the, the first fight. So I, I still lean with Izzy being the more complete fighter here. I lean with Izzy being the guy that has more paths to victory in this matchup, which is why I think he's going to go out there and win back his title. It's going to be a close fight. It's always a scary proposition to go out there and bet against a guy who has fight-ending power, especially over 25 minutes. But I think that will see Israel Adesanya recapture his fight here, or recapture his title here, pitch a clean fight, maybe drop a round, maybe have a scary moment or two. But I think for the most part, we'll see him pick up a win via decision. And that is a wrap on the breakdowns. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the episode as always. Hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. It's always amazing seeing the numbers consistently go up on a podcast to podcast basis. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you guys have gotten used to seeing these podcasts drop every Monday afternoon. I'm always aiming for noon Eastern time. I appreciate everybody that checks out the podcast. Again, hit that like and subscribe below. Best way to support your boy, Patreon. Link in the description below if you want access to the breakdowns for PFL. That's where you'll find them. And again, the YouTube membership, which I've dropped, hit that join button below and you'll get access on Tuesday to the early odds analysis for UFC Kansas City, which goes down next weekend, headlined by Max Holloway and Arnold Allen. We'll give you a quick look at it before the public turns their eyes to it. I got you guys covered. All right, I'll see you guys closer to the end of the week for the Lockheed Trinity, which goes down on Thursday, and then Friday for the three best prop bets. Appreciate all the love and support as always. I'll see you guys later this week. Peace. Last thing. Bye.